0: When Vaclav Trites first described the suspensory ligament of the duodenum, he had no idea his name would later become one of the most important anatomic distinctions in gastroenterology. It is difficult to go through medical school and residency without ever encountering a gastrointestinal bleed. An important anatomic distinction is whether that bleed is determined to be an upper or a lower GI bleed, and the distinction is set at the level of the ligament of Trites. Clinically, this distinction has held its place until now, But more and more experts are considering the small bowel as a separate clinical entity, as an etiology for bleeding, given the exciting advances in investigative modalities for the small bowel. For the time being, though, trites lives on. Today, our patient has a lower GI bleed, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on-call. Today's episode is titled, It's Lower Than You Think, an approach to lower GI bleed. Time for our minute physiology. The gastrointestinal tract includes essentially every anatomical structure from mouth to anus. As mentioned earlier, GI bleeds are separated into upper and lower GI bleeds, and the separation is set at the ligament of trites, which is at the duodenojejunal flexure. Therefore, semantically, lower GI bleeds can originate from the distal part of the duodenum, jejunum, ileum, colon, all the way down to the anus. The clinical presentation will vary based on the anatomic location of the bleeding and on the transit time from the bleeding site to the anus. A lower GI bleed will often present as bright red blood per rectum, but can also present as maroon-colored stools, or even melina if they occur more proximally, at the right colon or above. There are many causes of lower GI bleed. In order of decreasing frequency, the most common causes of lower GI bleed are diverticular bleeding, ischemic colitis, hemorrhoids, colorectal cancer bleeding polyps and adenomas, angiodysplasia, inflammatory bowel disease, infectious diarrhea, ulcer bleeding, post-polypectomy bleeding, and colorectal varices. Patients with lower GI bleeds are more likely to remain hemodynamically stable. Still, a lower GI bleed should nonetheless be taken seriously, as it may lead to significant drops in hemoglobin or, eventually, hemodynamic instability. Be especially careful if your patient is newly hypotensive, tachycardic, or has orthostatic changes. Postural changes with the patient moving from a supine position to sitting on the edge of the bed can give valuable information as to the degree of blood loss. For example, a postural drop of 20 over 10 of blood pressure, or a postural increase of 20 in heart rate, can represent an acute loss of 20% of intravascular blood volume. Alright, so now that we've discussed the basic anatomic principles surrounding lower GI bleed and its classification, let's talk about the approach. When you get asked to assess what seems to be a lower GI bleed, there are several questions to ask. Is it frank bright red blood per rectum? If so, this is most likely a distal bleed, more often diverticular. However, up to 15% of frank hematochesia can be brisk upper GI bleeds, so this is something to seriously consider, particularly if there is hemodynamic instability. If there is both blood and stool, is the blood separate from the stool or on the tissue paper? If so, this will make you think of an anorectal bleed especially if there is no hemoglobin drop. If the stool is mixed in, this is more likely a colonic source. Finally, maroon-colored stool implies a more proximal source, and melina will be more likely from the right colon, the small bowel, or more proximally, of course. However, we will assume that our patient has a lower GI bleed to stay on topic. If the clinical presentation includes melina or hemodynamic instability, an upper GI bleed cannot be ruled out and would require an EGD to rule it out. Now let's go see the patient. Before focusing on the bleed, let's have a quick overview of your patient. Are they protecting their airway? How is their breathing? These questions are crucial in upper GI bleeding, but should never be ignored in any acute situations. Finally, as discussed earlier, look at the patient's vital signs, with a particular interest for any evidence of instability. This will not only help guide the degree to which you need to resuscitate your patient, but will also help determine the initial testing modality and its timing. A quick decision support tool that one can consider is the shock index, which is the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. A shock index less than 1 is considered stable, whereas a shock index greater than 1 is considered unstable. In stable patients, the Oakland score can be applied to determine whether the patient can be safely discharged from the ER for outpatient endoscopy or admitted. This score is based on age, sex, vital signs, previous history of lower GI bleed, DRE findings, and hemoglobin level. Initial assessment and resuscitation should be performed at the same time. Important points to elicit on history should be the duration of bleeding, medication use such as anticoagulants, antiplatelets, and NSAIDs, and the presence of abdominal pain, diarrhea, altered bowel habits, constitutional symptoms, or symptoms resulting from hypovolemia. Past medical history is also relevant, including any prior bleeding episodes, prior endoscopy and relevant findings, and history of IBD or intraabdominal radiation. Surgical history and history of recent endoscopic procedures should also be obtained. Along with your physical assessment, ensure you have done an appropriate perianal and rectal exam to look for evidence of bleeding and to rule out an acute hemorrhoidal bleed. Once you've secured good IV access with at least two large-bore needles, it's time to resuscitate. Start with intravenous fluids in the form of crystalloid solutions to try and normalize your patient's vital signs. Keep in mind, crystalloid resuscitation could contribute to coagulopathy resulting from dilution. Rapid transfusion of blood products may therefore be required. In fact, red blood cells should be given in a patient with massive bleeding, irrespective of initial hemoglobin levels. The transfusion threshold for blood should be otherwise 70 micromoles per liter. Platelet transfusion should only be considered when the count is below 50 times 10 to the 9 per liter, or 100 if platelet dysfunction is suspected clinically. Elevated INR can be challenged with vitamin K, which will not act in the acute setting, or with PCC or reversal agents in patients on anticoagulant antiplatelets. However, such approaches are discouraged except in the context of life-threatening bleeding. The risk of worsening bleeding should be weighed against the risk of a thromboembolic event, and the appropriate consultants should be involved. We will be providing a resource for this later. Let's talk about our workup. Remember, in the context of a GI bleed, History taking, physical exam, laboratory workup, and resuscitation happen simultaneously. Once your IV accesses are secured, send off for basic labs with a complete blood count to assess your patient's hemoglobin and platelets, basic metabolic panel, coagulation studies, liver enzymes, and blood type and cross-match. A BUN to creatinine ratio could also be requested to further support your suspicion and differentiate an upper GI bleed from a lower GI bleed a higher ratio is strongly correlated with an upper GI bleed. Once you've completed initial management, it's time to decide on patient disposition. As mentioned previously, a patient with an Oakland score-favoring discharge and appropriate profile, such as the presence of a minor bleeding, stable hemodynamics and hemoglobin, and an SI less than 1, can be sent home with outpatient investigation via lower endoscopy with timing to be determined based on shared decision-making with the patient. This should be done within two weeks, particularly if risk factors are present for an underlying malignancy. If the patient requires admission but is hemodynamically stable, the cornerstone of management is supportive in nature with resuscitation and close monitoring. Again, an urgent EGD should be done if an upper source is suspected, such as in a patient with bright red blood per rectum and a significant hemoglobin drop and or hemodynamic instability, even if transient. In a case of persisting bleeding with an otherwise hemodynamically stable patient, a lower endoscopy can be arranged during the same hospitalization. If no source is identified following endoscopy, other options should be considered such as CT enterography, capsule endoscopy, radio-labeled scans, or CTA. In a hemodynamically unstable patient, SI greater than 1, a CTA should be urgently arranged to localize the site of blood loss. A gastroscopy should be done prior to CTA if there is suspicion for upper GI bleed as described earlier. Otherwise, if an upper source is not suspected, one should immediately proceed with a CTA. Note that the detection of bleeding via CTA requires that the bleed be active, and at a rate of 0.3 to 1.0 mLs per minute. Once the bleeding source is localized, a decision can be made on therapeutic management via interventional radiology or endoscopy, based on expertise available at one's hospital. If therapeutic options fail, surgical consultation should be sought. If no bleeding source has been found and no colonoscopy has been performed, colonoscopy can be done when the patient is stabilized. It is important to note that colonoscopies are not to be done urgently, but should be sought within the same hospitalization in an admitted patient. If no bleeding source is identified following colonoscopy and the bleeding persists, or if this is a recurrent bleeding episode, nuclear medicine studies or video capsule endoscopies should be considered. Yield of VCE is highest when closest to the bleeding episode particularly within 48 hours of the episode, but can be done within 5 days of presentation. Now let's talk through treatment. As mentioned before, resuscitation with fluids or blood products is of the utmost importance, and appropriate supportive strategies are a cornerstone of the management of lower GI bleed. If the bleed is active and persistent, and upper GI bleed has been ruled out, CTA should be performed, and once a bleeding site is identified, an angiogram should be done for embolization of the bleeding site. If there is a decision to undergo colonoscopy, ensure adequate bowel preparation. Preparation with 4 liters of polyethylene glycol should be sufficient to allow for appropriate endoscopic visualization. Bowel movements should be liquid and transparent. Endoscopic management depends on the etiology of the bleed, and lesions are only rarely identified. For instance, diverticular bleeding is often self-resolved, and there may not be active bleeding at the time of endoscopy. If identified endoscopically, diverticular bleeding can be treated with endoscopic banding or clipping. Angioectasias are more often found in elderly patients on anticoagulation or antiplatelets, often in the right colon. APC, argon plasma coagulation, is an effective therapeutic modality. Post-polypectomy bleeding is suspected by a history of a recent endoscopy with polypectomy and can occur several weeks after polypectomy, particularly in patients on anticoagulants. For these patients, a colonoscopy in the acute setting is reserved for patients experiencing continued bleeding. It can be managed with CLIPS, thermal contact, epinephrine injection, or hemostatic topical product application. Bleeding secondary to inflammatory colitis, ischemic colitis, or neoplasms as confirmed endoscopically are not generally amenable to endoscopic or radiological management. Surgical assessment should be sought if significant bleeding persists. Let's finish with our medicine minute. One of the most important considerations in GI bleeding, whether it be upper or lower, is the periprocedural management of anticoagulation and antiplatelets. Decisions regarding when to hold or continue these medications, as well as when to reverse their effects remain controversial, as we need to consider both the risk of thromboembolic events as well as the risk of bleeding. The Canadian Association of Gastroenterology and the American College of Gastroenterology have recently published guidelines regarding the management of these medications in an acute GI bleed setting and periendoscopic period. In an acute GI bleed setting, for those with a single antiplatelet regimen, it is recommended to continue aspirin in patients taking it for secondary prophylaxis. In patients in whom aspirin was held, especially if the procedure is associated with a high risk of bleeding, it should be resumed as soon as endoscopic resolution of bleeding is confirmed. There are no clear recommendations in regards to those on a single P2Y12 inhibitor. As for those on dual antiplatelet therapy, it is recommended to temporarily hold the P2Y12 inhibitors. It should be resumed immediately after endoscopic hemostasis has been confirmed. For patients on vitamin K antagonists, reversal with vitamin K prothrombin complex concentrate, or FFP, is generally not recommended. In life-threatening hemorrhage, substantially elevated INR, or when massive transfusion protocol is not recommended, reversal with PCC or FFP should be considered, with a preference for PCC based on limited data with its higher risk of post-transfusion overload. Reversal of DOACs is not recommended, but it can be considered in life-threatening hemorrhage and if they were last taken less than 24 hours prior to presentation. The resumption of doax implies an informed decision with consideration of adequate hemostasis, risk of delayed bleeding with the endoscopic intervention, risk of thrombosis, and a multidisciplinary discussion with the patient, cardiology, and hematology. In an elective setting, it is recommended to hold doax for 24 to 48 hours prior to the procedure. It should be resumed 24 hours post-procedure, or 48 hours after if the procedure is associated with a high risk of bleeding. Alright, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode titled It's Lower Than You Think. This episode was written by Dr. Ikram Abal Mohammed and Dr. Amin Zouglami, Internal Medicine Residents, and reviewed by Dr. Alan Barkin, Gastroenterology, and Dr. Sanabel Zavat, Internal Medicine. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and executively produced by Zara Morali and Leia Karianopoulos. This episode is recorded and produced by Leia Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshmi Bisanthamoan. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.